Good morning. Uh, my name's Mike. This is your first time here. I'm the lead pastor at MCC. And if you're watching online, thanks for joining us there. And if you live in the area, because we know, listen, people will watch online, kind of check us out, see who we are uh, before they'll join us here. But if you live close and are able to, we hope you'll join us here uh, quickly too. Uh, for the last several weeks, as Drew just mentioned, we've been looking at the Old Testament story of the prophet Jonah, and a lot has happened over the last several weeks. So I'm going to summarize to make sure that we are all on the same page this morning. The book opens with God telling Jonah he wants him to go to the city of Nineveh to tell them that if they do not change their ways, the city is going to be leveled. It's going to be destroyed. Now, Jonah was a prophet of God. It was kind of his job to go deliver these kind of messages. But Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because Nineveh was the most feared enemy of Israel. They were brutal. Uh, Assyrian engravings depicted people being tortured, skulls worn around their necks uh, just to show their cruelty. And when they took over a town in battle, they would take any survivors and they would impale them on stakes in front of the town. Jonah thought... With that kind of a job opportunity, he would take a vacation to think it over, perhaps a cruise. Uh, actually, Jonah boards a ship heading in the opposite direction. Jonah 1 verse 3 tells us that his hope was to escape from God. He did not want to do it. It would be as if God said, hey, Jonah, I'd like you to go to Miami Beach, Florida. And he said, no, hey, how about Seattle, Washington, right? Uh, he did not want to go. God shows up in the fury of a storm. Jonah gets tossed. Uh, somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and as the boat gets smaller and smaller in the distance, and Jonah's legs get more and more tired of treading water, he begins to sink. And so God provides a great fish to swallow Jonah. And I said this last week, I want to make sure you get it. If you didn't hear it, I want to make sure you hear it again. It's on the top of your notes. Many people think that the fish is how God punished Jonah, but that fish is how God saved Jonah's life. And maybe you have found the same to be true in your life. What were the darkest days of your life? And caused you to, it caused you to rethink the decisions you had been making. And for some of us, maybe many of us, the decisions that we were making were what was causing the darkest days in our lives, right? But it turned you back to God. And what you thought that God had sent to punish you actually saved your life or your marriage or your relationship with your kids or your job or your health. And last week, we looked at chapter 2, Jonah's prayer, and I didn't mention this last week, uh, but I wanted to make sure that you know, he most likely did not write this while he was in the fish, right? Couldn't find the stationery, no pen, right? Uh, but I would imagine his prayer as he sank uh, and thought he was a goner was the same prayer you and I would pray if we were sinking, thinking that we're goners, you know, something more along the lines of... God, I'm dying here, please help me, those kind of things. Not poetic, but we're reminded last week that when we pray to him, God says in Psalm 50, if you pray to me in times of trouble, I will rescue you and you will honor me. And God did. He showed up. And sometime later, Jonah uh, writes this prayer. He composed this psalm of gratitude. And that last week is where we left our partially digested prophet in the story. He was still in the fish, but look at what happens next. Verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Listen, if there is nothing else that this story tells us, for sure we know you can't keep a good man down. 
I have been waiting all week for that. Listen, a friend of mine, uh, J.C. Collins, uh, one of our guys here, he is a retired Lieutenant Colonel U.S. Air Force, was stationed overseas and actually got to visit this beach. This beach uh, is a shoreline near Is. I'm going to slaughter the name of this, Iskenderun, uh, Turkey. And tradition holds it that that's where Jonah was cookie-tossed onto the shore. Now, if you went 550 miles due east, you would find yourself in modern-day Iraq, the site of ancient Nineveh. And to be clear, I just want to make sure you know, this, this guy here is not a, that's not a picture of Jonah uh, uh, post-Upchuck. We don't know for sure where the fish vomited him out. Tradition tells us it's for sure this shoreline, and we know it was somewhere along the coast of the Mediterranean. Uh, again, the Bible doesn't say. Some suggest it was actually 420 miles south of that location, which would have put it more, uh, more close to, more, would have been closer to the city of Joppa where he had originally sailed. Now, think about that for a moment. If that's the case, it meant that Jonah tried to run from God swallowed by a fish and ended up right back where he started, right? And to me, there's a little divine humor uh, in that. But when you disobey God, you find yourself working hard but getting nowhere. And we need to be aware of that. Jonah chapter 3 verse 1 starts this way. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Literally, those words mean cry the cry I give you. They hold this idea of an earnestness, an urgency. So he wasn't just saying the words. There was an earnestness in what he was saying. Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. And by the way, if the fish did vomit him back out where he started, he was 500 miles from getting to Nineveh. He still had to make that trip. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, took three days to go through it, And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. God called Nineveh the great city of Nineveh. It's 280 miles north of Babylon, now part of Mosul. It's the second largest city in Iraq. For a thousand years, it was the supreme capital of the Assyrian Empire. The palace covered three city blocks. The hallways they've discovered were 40 feet wide by 180 feet long, and the walled city had a circumference of seven and three quarters miles. It could hold 180,000 people, but at this time it only had 120. It was a large city. It was a wealthy city. We've talked. It was a happening city. But as big as it was, it would not take three days to walk all the way through. Unless your walking through included stopping every 100 feet and preaching. If you're going to see every part of the city, the inner city, the suburbs, the businesses, the palace, the marketplace, this city, listen, this city was everything that Jonah hated. He wanted God to drop the hammer on this city. And I wonder if Jonah wasn't a little concerned for his safety. A couple of weeks ago, I told you that soldiers who were captured alive by the Assyrians were skinned alive and then buried up to their neck in the sand, and then they would pull their tongue out and stake it to the ground to watch them go crazy uh, of thirst, trying to get a drink of water. Imagine what they would do to a prophet who was saying that their beloved capital city was going to be destroyed. But Jonah did it. And his sermon is eight words long, actually five in the Hebrew. But they are powerful words because they are God's words. As a matter of fact, we're reminded in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 4, that the word of God is alive and active. 
It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts even today. And this whole city, it did the same thing that day. That whole city was changed. And if this story teaches us anything, it's that it is never too late with God. So wherever you are in your life right now, whatever you have done, whoever you have hurt, it is not too late for you. God loves you, and he wants to extend his mercy to you. And our response today will look a lot like their response in that day. It's what chapter 3 is all about. So verse 5 The Ninevites believed God. And we're just going to stop there for a moment. Because the response to God's mercy, the first response is to believe in him. If you want to respond to his mercy, you have to believe. Uh, Hebrews 11.6 tells us, and without faith it's impossible to please God. Because anyone uh, who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he will earnestly reward those who seek him. So the first step in developing a relationship with God is to believe that he exists. So, just for a moment, can we kind of talk back and forth? We don't do that very often. Uh, If you're new here, we don't do this all the time. But I'm going to ask you a question and ask you to respond out loud. Is that okay? Okay, sure. All right, very good. (laughs) So the first step is so important. Do you believe in God? Okay. The Bible says that he's the one who spoke the world into existence. Is he the one you believe in? The Bible says that as vast as our universe is, it's merely the breadth of his hand. Is he the God that you believe in? Okay. Uh, He's the God who sent a prophet after King David, a donkey to talk some sense into Balaam, a fish after Jonah, a bright light after Saul, and his own son after you and me. Is that who you believe in? The one who knows you so well that the very hairs on your head are numbered. The one who knows everything you've done, every word you've ever said, every thought you've ever had, and he loves you enough to die on a cross for you. Is that the one you believe in? The one who even now, we're told in the Old Testament, sings over us. Is that the God you believe in? The one who loves you enough to sing over you. Look at what Jesus told his followers. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Jonah preached. The people of Nineveh believed. Look at what happens next. So the Ninevites believed God, and a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let the animals, uh, people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So here's this city that's known for its feasting. And the king calls for a fast, which, by the way, means no eating. And it included everyone, man, woman, child, even the animals. Verse 7 says, even the animals. They, listen, these guys were covering their bases on this. So the response to God's mercy, I need to repent. Those two actions... 
are a sign of repentance. In the New Testament, when you read the word repentance, it's the word metanoia. Meta means to change. Metamorphosis is the process that a caterpillar goes through to become a, a butterfly. And noia means mind. So repentance means a changing of the mind. And by fasting, they were denying themselves in remorse for their sins. Sackcloth was this coarse, rough, uh, dark-colored cloth, usually made of goat hair or camel hair. It was used for making sacks for grain. So it was humiliating. It was uncomfortable. And it was really important. It's these outward signs that, that powerfully said that a profound change was going on inside of them. So they humbled themselves before God. But repentance is more than just asking for forgiveness. It's actually a change in action. A friend of mine, and I won't tell you what part of the country he's in, was a dean at a senior high week of Christian camp. The theme of that week was holiness and purity. And they talked about getting rid of habits or anything that might be drawing them away from God. And so he asked the teenagers, what is it that you have in your life that's doing that to you right now? Well, my friend that week caught one of the campers with cigarettes, which is against the rules at camp. Uh, but instead of kicking him out, my friend said that he thought this kid really needed a second chance. And evidently he was right. Because that night at the campfire, that kid rededicated his life to Jesus and asked if he could say something to the other campers. Then he told the other campers about what had happened. And then he produced some cigarettes that he still had. They hadn't been found. And he threw them in the fire. That night at a Christian church camp, they burned secular concert t-shirts and CDs, cigarettes, chewing tobacco, pornography, and condoms. That's what they had with them at church camp. And here's what's important to catch on that, because I could have got caught in that when, I was, when he was sharing that story. I kind of got stuck there for a moment. But the point of the whole story is they, they hadn't been caught. Those students hadn't been caught. What they'd been is convicted and they wanted to completely forsake their past, and so they burned it. So on your notes, repentance is not only saying, I'm sorry, it's also saying, I'm through. It's what the king says in verse 8. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. The king is saying, maybe if we change our ways, God will change his mind. That's what Ambrose of Milan said. True repentance is to cease from sin because when we repent, we change. We change our mind. We change our value system. We change our attitudes. We change the direction of our life. It takes more than an admission of guilt. It takes more than tears. It takes change. So in Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. The people have been told, Peter preaches a sermon that tells the people that they have crucified the Son of God, and they say, what do we need to do to make this right? And in Acts 2.38, Peter tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen, not only did the Ninevites express sorrow, but they changed their sinful behavior. They believed, and then they repented. Look at verse 8. He said, let everyone call urgently to God. The response to God's mercy is to confess. If I'm going to respond appropriately, I need to confess. And there are a couple of parts to this. Uh, on your notes, here's the first part. Confession is telling God who I've been. It's all about telling him what I've been up to. Uh, Proverbs 28 says, people who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. 
Douglas Fortner is a Catholic priest, and uh, I love the story he tells about the young children at their school. He said the younger children at our parochial school often forgot their sins when they entered into the confessional, so I suggested that the teachers have their students make a list of the things they wanted to confess. He said the next week, one of the kids came into confession, and I could hear him unfolding his paper, and he said the youngster began, uh, I lied to my parents, I disobeyed my mom, I fought with my brothers, and he said, then there was this long pause, and this little angry voice said, hey, wait a minute, this isn't my paper. <laughs> I wonder, is it possible that in the church today, let me say that another way, I wonder if it's possible in our church today that there are those believers whose lives are not what they could be, are not what they should be, maybe have even become less because there's something that stands between you and God and you need to get it out of the way. And so to be very clear, I'm not asking if you sin because the answer to that is yes. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all of us have struggled, still struggle with sin. The question isn't do you struggle with sin? The question is do you talk to God about your struggle with sin? Confession is telling God who I've been, but it's also telling God who I believe he is. In Matthew 16, 16, Jesus asks his followers, who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter says, I believe that you are the Christ, right? You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven. Paul would write to the church in Rome, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it's by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. So you're following this path that the Ninevites are walking. It calls for faith. We're going to respond to God's mercy. calls for repentance and confession. But there's one more step. But it's not found in our verses because this is an Old Testament story. But it is found all over the New Testament. As a matter of fact, we've already read it several times this morning. In Mark 16, whoever believes and is what? Baptized will be saved. Peter replied, repent and what? Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was Jesus' last instructions to his followers before he left. He said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I will always be with you. So the response to God's mercy is my promise through my baptism. My promise through baptism. Listen, I've told you before that uh, my favorite verse uh, about baptism is really one I don't even remember hearing growing up. Peter writes about it at the end of the New Testament. He says, and this water symbolizes, he's talking about, he was telling the story of Noah, uh, the ark, the flood. He says, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And listen, when you realize that, you have to make a decision. That's why this past Thursday evening, Tim Bross came over and was baptized into Christ. It's why this morning that Isabella Bowden is going to come she's, during our next hour, and she's going to be baptized by her mom. Look, look at that last verse. When God saw what they did, 
and how they had turned from their evil ways. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. It's interesting, this whole chapter 3 is bracketed by God's mercy. In the first verse, it's his mercy to Jonah. And in the last verse, it's his mercy to the Ninevites. And their response is this heartfelt repentance. God says this to his prophet Jeremiah. There may come a time when I will speak about a nation or a kingdom, that I will pull it up by its roots, or that I will pull it down to destroy it. But if the people of that nation stop doing the evil they have done, I will change my mind. And I will not carry out my plans to bring disaster to them. And so maybe for you this morning, or I'm going to bet at a minimum, you have a friend who needs to know that the most important part of the story is that, and I'll say it again, I said it earlier, it's not too late. Wherever you are, whatever you have done, whoever you have hurt, it's not too late. God loves you. And wants to extend his mercy to you. Now if you've been looking at your notes. I know that you've noticed there's still a blank that hasn't been filled in. I did that because there are some here. Even this right now in this room. Whose lives have not filled that blank in. And so let's take a look at that. Here's how that blank gets filled in. My response to God's mercy. Listen. I just want to make sure we're all clear. You have to respond. It's not enough that your mom responded or your dad responded or that your, the family that you grew up in were all Christians or that even today you go to church all the time. It doesn't matter that you have a Bible. It's not about being a good person. To accept God's grace, you must respond to him. A friend of mine shared a story about, it's back in 1830, George Wilson was convicted of robbing the United States mail, uh, and he was sentenced to be hanged. President Andrew Jackson issued a pardon for him, but he refused to accept it. The matter went to Chief Justice Marshall, who concluded that Wilson would have to be executed. This is what uh, Chief Justice Marshall said. He said, a pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused... It is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. Listen, please. God's grace is being extended to you. But he can only extend it. You have to accept it. You have to accept it for you. No one else can accept that for you. You accept that for you. So we're going to end with this verse. It's something that Paul wrote to the church uh, in the New Testament. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We implore you on Jesus' behalf. Please be reconciled to God. Please. Please be reconciled. On behalf of Jesus this morning, I am begging you, if you have never done this, it's your response. It's your decision to make. Please, please be reconciled to God. His mercy is extended to you. 
but you have to make the decision to respond to him. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing a song, and you decide. And if you decide that you want to accept his grace, I'm going to be sitting right down here. You can come during the song. You can come after the service. The, the invitation never closes. But I hope you will decide. Let's go to him in prayer. God, thank you for your love for us. It, it is it's incredible to think that you never give up on us. And when we look at the Ninevites, it may be fair to say that all of us in the room were a bit disgusted when we heard of how they treated people that they would defeat in battle. And it's no wonder that Jonah hated them because he'd done, they'd done that to his own people. No wonder he didn't want them to hear about you because what they did is what he feared the most that is awful and horrible as they were, you would forgive them because you love forgiving people if they will just turn to you. And so, Father, if there's anyone in the room this morning who has never given their life to you, if they've never made that decision for themselves to follow you, to belong to you, to be your child, Father, that they would be obedient, as Jesus said, through their baptism. And I pray that they would respond to you. And we have friends, those of us in this room, we have friends who have no idea of this message. They do not know that on your behalf, we are begging them because we've never done it. We've never talked to them about it. So God made the hearts of those who are saved to be convicted this morning as well, that we are your ambassadors. God, help us to take our next step in our faith. If we're followers of yours, to help our friends understand. If we've never made that decision, God, may today be the day we take that step. And we pray this through your son, Jesus. Amen.